This is a Rooster Teeth production. August 7th, 1997. Fine Air Flight 101, a McDonnell Douglas DC-8 cargo flight with four people on board, is preparing to take off from Miami, Florida, bound for Santo Domingo, Dominican Republic. The crew completes all their pre-flight checks and begins accelerating down the runway for takeoff. As soon as the plane becomes airborne, the crew begins fighting to try and keep the aircraft from pitching up too far. People on the ground report seeing flames coming out of one of the engines. The crew struggles against the controls in vain, and less than a minute later, the plane crashes into a busy intersection next to the airport. Everyone on board the plane and one person in a car on the ground are killed. What caused this flight to go wrong so quickly? Find out on this episode of Black Box Down. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Black Box Down. It's me, Gus, and it's you, Chris. Oh, yeah, and that, yes. <laughs> You changed it up and, I, and it threw me for a loop. <laughs> yeah, I was like, I can do something different this time. Got to mix it up. I've, I talked a few episodes ago about like how I always say the same thing. God, maybe it was a while ago. I talked at some point about how I always say the same thing. So got a sneak attack. Yeah. Before we get started, guess what I'm going to do? I'm going to ask you to follow us on social media, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, at Black Box Down Pod. We also got a YouTube channel. We put uh, some explainer videos and uh, animated episodes up there. If you want to listen to the episodes early and ad-free, you can check out information at blackboxdownpod.com. Learn how to accomplish that in whatever player you're already listening to the podcast in. And just get them a little early and get them ad-free. Also, and thank everyone who came to RTX um, and came to our Black Box Down panel. Yeah. it was really fun. Actually, at RTX, I wore a new shirt, a new piece of merch that we have that by the time this episode comes out, it'll be in the store. It's got our, our little autopilot logo, like on the chest, uh, like embroidered. It's really nice. And there's a coffee mug with the autopilot uh, character. That's, and it says, uh, uh, what does it say? I'm on autopilot. Yeah, <laughs> which I really like because it's coffee. And you can also buy a little decal with that character. I think it's it's super cute, like a little robot wearing a pilot's hat. You can check that out at store.roosterteeth.com or in our link tree on social media. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think the shirt's super cool. It's embroidered. The mug, I think, is genuinely funny. <laughs> and uh, yeah. I really like that sticker. I, I, I just like the art for that autopilot. Yeah, I know. I mean, it, it, it's like from the aviation explanation animations, that, that little autopilot guy is my favorite. Little, either, uh, yeah, yeah, either that or the like the fake, uh, it looks like a movie poster for Alternate Law 2. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that, that's another great one. Al did a, a great job with those. So... so what about that's this? Ni- yeah. Yeah, that's neither here nor there. Because <laughs> we're right now, we're talking about Fine Air Flight 101, cargo flight, like I said, going from Miami to uh, the Las Americas International Airport near Santo Domingo, Dominican Republic. Uh, what is this? About 25 years ago now, August 7th, 1997, the flight was crewed by Captain Dale Patrick Thompson, who was 42 years old with 12,154 flight hours. First officer, Stephen Petrosky, who was 26 with 2,641 hours. Flight engineer, Glenn Millington, who was 35 years old with 1,570 flight hours. And there was one other person on board. There was a 32-year-old security guard named Enrique Soto. Uh, as a cargo flight, presumably he was just there, you know, for security, taking the, the stuff overseas and you know, making mm-hmm. sure everything goes okay. The plane was a little old. It was a 29-year-old McDonnell Douglas DC-8 with 46,825 hours and 41,688 cycles. I mean, that's pretty old. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, it's not it's not new by any stretch of the imagination. I mean, what does that mean? It was built in, or it was delivered like in 1968? Yeah. Just think about, it. yeah, what a long period of time that was, 29 years. That's that's a long time for a plane. Yeah, but I bet it's got a, it's had a lot of, uh, you know, services and new 
engine stuff put in. Yeah, that's the thing. Like it sounds, you know, when you hear how old some planes are, you're like, oh my god, that's so old. But typically, due to uh, maintenance schedules and the way everything's run, it's it's normally kept up to date. It's like the plane that you're flying is not the same plane that was delivered yeah. all those years ago. I guess I was thinking of it like you know cars, right? You know, there might be old cars from like the '60s that are updated, but they they like have new engines, right? They don't have the right. original parts for the most part. It's just a lot of the body, right? Right. And if they do have the original parts, they probably break down a lot. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Speaking from experience as someone who once (laughs) once owned a very old truck. So originally, this flight was supposed to be flown with a different aircraft. It was another Mm DC-8. But when the cargo was delivered to the Fine Air ramp in Miami, Fine Air reported that the scheduled plane had been delayed and wouldn't get to Miami in time for the scheduled departure of 9.15 a.m. Just for clarification, there's another company involved here called Aeromar. And mm-hmm. Aeromar is the company that the cargo actually belonged to. So, you know, they want to get their cargo to Dominican Republic. Fine Air saying, yeah, we're not going to have a plane. So Aeromar requested the use of another airplane. And Fine Air was able to find a substitute plane, which is the one, you know, that they end up flying. And the departure time was rescheduled for noon. So the ground crew began loading the cargo at 10.30 a.m. And the final pallet was loaded at 12.06 p.m., according to the timestamp on a surveillance camera. So... They're a little behind schedule. Uh, not terrible considering they thought they weren't going to have a plane. They're only about three hours behind. Okay. The crew were notified of the noon departure at 10 a.m. And the captain arrived for duty first and began reviewing the flight departure documents, including the load sheet, fuel load, weather, dispatch papers, all the stuff that you know goes on before a pilot takes off. I have a question. This is probably not too relevant, but since it was a three-hour delay, was it the same crew and did, does that mean their like day started three hours previously, and they were just like hanging out? I don't think they were there. I you know I okay. think they were going to plan to arrive, and uh you know they were you know they they're told the plane's not going to be there, and then at ten a.m. is when they find out, hey, actually you are going to go, and it's going to be at noon instead of nine fifteen a.m. Just wondering because we talk a lot about like uh, how long a crew is allowed to fly and things right. like that. Yeah, and uh, honestly, Miami to Dominican Republic's not a very long flight. You know, Dominican Republic's in the Caribbean. From Miami, it's I'm, I'm going to guess here, it's probably a two-hour flight, maybe a two-and-a-half-hour flight. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not super far. So the flight engineer got there about 30 minutes after the captain began his pre-flight inspection, which include, you know, system checks in the cockpit, outside walk-around inspections of the airplane, and an inspection of the cargo load, you know, that they're taking. Mm-hmm. The first officer arrived 30 minutes later, which is about an hour after the captain, uh, reviewed the departure documents and went to the airplane, and the cargo door was closed at 12.11, and the cabin door was closed at 12.22, according to the surveillance cameras. The number three engine was started on the ramp. So this has this is a plane with four engines. The number three engine, would be, if you're sitting in the plane, it's the one, the one to your right that's closest to the fuselage. Okay. So if you're sitting in the plane facing forward, one is the furthest left, two is immediately to the left of the fuselage, three is immediately to the right of the fuselage, and then four is the furthest to the right. They start the number three engine on the ramp, and then the airplane was towed to an area a short distance away where the remaining three engines were started. Is that normal to start one engine before the others? Every plane's a little different. You know, I don't know specifically how this, what the start procedure is on a DC-8, but I mean, it's very common where you start one and then you use that to help start the others. Or you get one and you get towed somewhere and then do the other ones. It's, it's to be expected. They probably start one first so that they can get off of ground power. Okay. Yeah, you know, they can power the plane using that engine, you know, everything on board, they tow and then they start the other ones. That, if I had to guess, I'm guessing that's what happened here. They wanted to unplug it. So they yeah. start one engine okay. and then 
tow it away. That makes sense. The flight crew contacted air traffic control at 1233, and they were cleared to taxi to runway 27 right. After about a minute of taxiing, flight 101 was clear for takeoff at 1234, and as the airplane reached 80 knots, the crew performed an elevator check, which is done to make sure the plane's responding properly to the control inputs. And at about 15 seconds later, at 1235 and 39 seconds, there was a small thump sound recorded on the you know cockpit voice recorder. And four seconds later, the captain called out V1. And remember, V1 is the speed at which they need to take off. Yeah, or they, they like they're going too too fast. That if they don't take off, then they will what like crash into the stuff in the runway, right? Like it's too late to stop. Right. There's not enough runway left to stop. So once you hit V1, you got to get up in the air. And the thump like was in the cockpit or like. It's unknown. All they, okay. all you know at this point is that it was heard in the cockpit because it was uh, picked up on the cockpit voice recorder. And they did they say anything about? Were they like, oh, "Was a weird thump"? As far as I know, no. There is okay. no exchange about that because and you know it's very quickly all this stuff is happening. Yeah, you know they hear the thump and then four seconds later they call out V one and at this point you know they got to get the plane in the air. Yeah. So you know okay. it's like let's get the plane in the air. And it's interesting. Before a plane takes off, there was there was a, there's an interesting thing I learned actually uh, in you know looking into this incident. Before you take off, you know you'll do like a, what's called a takeoff briefing, mm-hmm. and we've I think we've talked about this before, where you know the the, the pilots will say you know if they'll they'll go over what's going to happen. They're going to take off, or and they're going to go over like if something goes wrong, what are they going to do? And uh, you know they'll say like you know if something goes off and we're not at V one, you know we're going to go ahead and hit the brakes, get off the runway, troubleshoot what's going on. If they're in the air, you know, what are they going to do? Are they going to, you know, put the plane down somewhere? You know, what's, what's their, emer- what are their backup plans in case something goes wrong? When this crew did the takeoff briefing, they mentioned something that I'd never thought about. And it makes total sense. I just never really thought about it. Mm-hmm. That if they had an emergency or a problem and they were already past V1, they would consider that an in-flight emergency. Even if they're mm, on the yeah. ground, if they're going faster than V1, it's an in-flight emergency because they have to take off. There is no stopping yeah. on the ground. That is a weird thing to think about, but it totally makes sense. So, I mean, the, the reason I bring that up now is because you're asking, like, did they comment on the thump? It could be they're already pretty much at V1. It's like, mm-hmm. well, <laughs> you can't do anything about it now. You know, even yeah. if there was, you know, you know what's going on. You got to get the plane into the air and then deal with this. So, like I was saying, a few seconds after, you know, they hit V1, the cockpit voice recorder picks up a second thump sound. But this is right when the captain calls out rotate. You know, at this point, they're pulling back to take off. Mm-hmm. About two seconds later, at 12.35 and 51 seconds, the captain started saying, easy, easy, followed by positive rate. And positive rate just means that they're climbing. The plane's mm-hmm. gaining altitude. The first officer, who was the one flying, said, gear up, and then said, what's going on? Definitely something you don't want to hear. Yeah, yeah. At 12.36, the sound of the stabilizer trim in motion warning horn was recorded, followed by the sound of a stick shaker. And that warning horn is just like, it sounds whenever they're moving their trim on their elevator. And the trim is like what helps them, what it like helps the plane nose up or down. That way they're not constantly pulling or pushing on the stick. Mm-hmm. The cop voice recorder picks up the sound of the alarm saying, you know, that that trim is being moved and the stick shaker is going off. The cockpit voice recorder recorded the sound of the trim in motion warning again five times between 1236.01 and 1236.09. So over the next, what, like eight seconds, they kept activating the trim five more times. At 12.36 and 12 seconds, the sound of the stick shaker stopped, but then it started again about six seconds later and continued until the end of the recording. So they're like, keep trying to like essentially stalling? Right. So what what you can infer from the fact that the trim is moving and the stick shaker is going off is that most likely at this point, 
the nose is coming up too high, too quickly. Mm-hmm. So they're trying to trim to get nose down and the stick mm-hmm. shaker's going off because they could be getting close to a stall. At 12.26 and 20 seconds, the cockpit voice recorder recorded the sounds similar to engine surges. Then the airplane crashed at about 12.36 and 25 seconds later, about 3,000 feet west of the departure end of runway 27 right. And this is actually, you know, just to give a little bit of a spoiler and, and jump ahead a little bit. You know, like I said there, the cockpit voice recorder recorded a sounds of engine surges. That was the source of the flames that the people saw on the ground oh. coming, coming out of the engine. The airflow going into the engines was disrupted, which was causing like incomplete combustion. So oh. the engine started surging and fire starts coming out of the back. So that is just a thing that the engines do. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's... the close, Well, not they're supposed to, obviously. They're not supposed to, yeah. The closest analogy would be like, a car backfiring, uh-huh. which I, I've never actually seen other than in movies. Oh, really? It's no. like it, it would just be like a bad fuel air mixture because, you know, in order for a combustion to happen in an engine, you need to have mm-hmm. a good ratio of air to fuel in order to get like the proper amount of combustion. And if the ratio is off, you might get incomplete combustion or you might get detonation, which is not like optimal. And you'll end up with in a car, you end up with a backfire or in a plane, you end up with like compressor uh, engine surges with the plane engines shooting fire right obviously mm-hmm. it's not supposed to happen but right. are the engines equipped or able to do that and still function does that make sense or is that like yeah i mean they're not going to be giving out optimal thrust you know they'll mm-hmm. be weakened and they shouldn't be doing that for an extended period of time like if it happens briefly okay uh not ideal but you know if you can recover and get proper uh, combustion happening again it's fine you yeah. know it's it's not gonna like destroy the engine or anything okay that's what yeah yeah but in th- in this case just like we already kind of alluded to it so I, I don't feel bad you know skidding this far ahead but if they were trying to trim down you know and you hear the um, the trim alarm going off and the stick shakers going off their nose is probably pointed too high which means not enough air is getting into the engine because it's pointed up too much because they're approaching a critical angle and that's why this engine starts surging, which is why it starts popping fire out of the back. Did you say what their angle of attack was? I, I didn't. I don't remember off the top of my head. I think we're going to get into it in the investigation. But I remember when I was reading through it, it was pretty severe. I think, I don't want to say it because I don't want to be wrong. But I want to say when I, when I was looking over the documents that they had approached like close to 40 degrees, which would be absolutely crazy. That's pretty high. Straight up, it's, right? It's pretty severe, yeah, especially when you're taking off because, you know, you're still at a low speed, still building airspeed. That would be a really significant <laughs> nose-up yeah. angle of attack. Well, Because we talked about ones that have gone more, but not so close to the ground. Right, and also typically when they do that, like the ones we've talked about before, they're at cruising altitude going yeah. at cruise speed as opposed to just getting off the ground at a really low speed. Mm. You know, when you're at a really low speed, you want to be real careful and build your airspeed in order to be able to gain altitude uh, and not have your angle of attack be too great. Otherwise, you know, you don't build airspeed and you encounter problems. Yeah. So anyway, the plane actually skidded across an open field and onto Northwest 72nd Avenue, and then it continued into the parking lot of a commercial mini mall. That is crazy. Yeah, the plane hit 26 cars. Oh my God. Yeah, and it stopped a few feet in front of some shop entrances. Uh, and the airplane caught on fire as it crashed, and you know all four people on board were killed, along with one person on the ground. It's a 34-year-old man named uh, Renato Alvarez, who was in one of the cars in the parking lot, and he was unable to get out, you know, and he was just in his car. He got hit by this plane. That's 
That is in the middle of a mall. And this was the ni- 90s. So the, the malls were actually populated. <laughs> it, was, it was a lot more popular. They actually, you know, despite the fact they hit 26 cars and, you know, mm-hmm. someone on the ground was killed in this, they were actually very fortunate because this is a busy road that crosses right by the airport there. And it just so happened when this accident happened, the road had red lights on it. So cars weren't passing oh. on this stretch of road right at that moment. And the cars were stopped at the intersection. Yeah, that is lucky. Because, <laughs> yeah, imagine hitting that many cars and only one person on the ground mm-hmm. and going in almost into a mall. Did it almost hit the, the mall? It was it was close. It was really close. Um, I'll, I'll see if I can dig up some photos and post yeah. them on our social media at Black Box Now Pod. That way you can see for yourself. But, yeah, it was uh, it was really, really close. I'm going to make a note of that right now. That's why you got to follow Black Box Now Pod. Get all the good photos. Well, yeah, just so you get like context and you can see for yourself. I'll see if I can also find some good images of that intersection in that road so you can see, you know, how how crazy it is that it just so happened that the lights were red. So the investigation was carried out by the NTSB. Can I make a guess? Go ahead. Was the cargo like weight distributed as such that it was all in the back? Man, you've been doing a lot of these episodes, haven't we, Chris? <laughs> but why was it like that is the question. Well, the thump makes me think that it wasn't properly restrained or something. Mm. I, I I did learn a little bit about the way cargo is loaded onto a plane because of this incident. I'll say that much right now. Is that too much of a... Well, I guess I'll find out. Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about it. No, I, I, like, I like it when you try to guess. Uh, you have good guesses. We've been doing this for a little while. <laughs> so like I said, NTSB is carrying out the investigation. And one thing that they discovered is that the flight data recorder failed to record six of the 11 required parameters of data. Hmm. It just wasn't working right. It did not record information about engine data, airspeed, pitch and roll attitudes, vertical acceleration, and microphone keying. So job was more difficult. And if you hear, like, one of the things it didn't record was pitch attitude. That's why I think it wasn't officially said. I think what I read before was just, like, estimates based on eyewitness accounts of what they were able to piece together. There was no official data in that regard. And was it because it got damaged in the incident or it just wasn't functioning properly? I I think it just wasn't functioning properly because I think it had no information leading up to that. I think it just just failed to record it. It just wasn't working right. 29-year-old plane. Uh, You know, they they service a lot of parts. They might not have serviced the the flight data recorder or it might have been a little while. Yeah. So, you know, the NTSB does determine all four engines were developing power at impact Propping noises and flames that were coming from the engines, like I said, were consistent with engine compressor surges that were caused by the extremely high angle of attack. Again, you know, not enough air was getting in there. It was The mixture was too rich, too much fuel. So that's why sparks and pops mm-hmm. were coming out of it. Because no evidence of pre-existing damage was found and engine fan speeds remained high, the NTSB concludes that the compressor surges were caused by the airplane's attitude before impact and that no significant loss of engine thrust occurred. And that engine performance was not a factor in this accident. So just like you did, they turned their attention <laughs> to the cargo on board the flight, right? Because, you know, first thing they're going to look at is, did the engine, because it's right on takeoff, right? They'd be like, did yeah. the engines mess up? No, the engines were fine. All of them, all four of them were giving power. Okay, well, it wasn't the engines. Let's look <laughs> at the cargo. The weight and balance form provided to the flight crew showed a calculated center of gravity location of 30% mean aerodynamic cord or MAC, M-A-C. If you hear me say MAC or M-A-C, it's the mean aerodynamic cord. And that's just like the way that they measure uh, the center of gravity location. However, investigators calculated a center of gravity of 32.8% MAC based on the loading scenario developed from information provided by the Aramar loaders. 
pallet weight documentation, and post-accident communication with RMR representatives. So, you know, they're going over the paperwork. The paperwork says the center of gravity was 30%. Then, you know, they do their own math to double check it, and their math shows 32.8%. So they're like, well, that seems weird. They'd like it, You would think that they would come up with the same number. Mm-hmm. However, you know, they look into it, and the plane's center of gravity aft limit is 33.1%. So even at 32.8, it's still within the, the correct range. Okay, and this was their calculations based off a correct loading in, like saying, hey, here's all the stuff we're putting in the plane. Here's our calculations. Right. Okay. But, you know, nonetheless, the numbers are different. So they're going to dig into this. And the investigators do, they found a succession of errors made by Finair and Aramar in the loading of this flight. And these errors made it impossible to precisely determine the weight and center of gravity from the data that were available. Ooh. (laughs) So they start digging and it's like, well, we can't find exact answers. For example, like some of the discrepancy was the cargo destined for the accident airplane was listed as weighing 89,719 pounds when it arrived at Aramar's warehouse. Mm -hmm. And then after being put on the pallets and secured with plastic covers and netting, the cargo was listed on the Aramar pallet load sheet as weighing 88,923 pounds. So Mm -hmm. they put it on pallets, wrapped it up and covered it, and it lost (laughs) Lost 800 pounds. Yeah. (laughs) Hmm. Those pallets are... Magical. I, I, I get the feeling we're going to see like infomercials. The pallet weight loss system, <laughs> like coming soon. Uh, I lost 800 pounds using pallets. <laughs> so based on post-accident Aramar statements that the entire cargo delivered to Aramar was loaded on the pallets for shipment on the accident plane, the actual cargo weight could have been at least 94,119 pounds. Wait, wait. 94,000? Right. So they're now they're trying to estimate what could it actually have been. And, you know, the investigators say it could have been 94,000 pounds. And what was the, the original weight before the pallets? The original weight when they received all of the goods was 89,719 pounds. So like 5,000 pounds. Yeah. So, yeah, it's, it's rough. It's 5,196 pounds, about 5,200 pounds more than what they said. Well, and then, you, you know, almost 6,000 pounds if you go off the numbers that they supplied. Yeah. So it's, that's, that's a big difference. We know we're talking almost two and a half, three tons worth of weight here. That's a, that's a lot of pallets. That's all pallets? Pallets and then like netting and stuff uh-huh. to secure everything, uh, you know, plastic wrap. If you think about like all of the cargo you can fit into a plane and all of the pallets uh-huh. you need, yeah, it's going to add up, right? Yeah. And then on top of that, like I said, netting, roping, everything to secure it. it it's, it's a lot of stuff. So obviously this is a lot of weight. And this could have had a significant effect on the center of gravity of the plane, depending on how it was distributed in the plane. Yeah. Wait, and sorry, just just for context, the DC-8, since we normally talk about a lot of like passenger flights, in a DC-8 of this, like this plane, how many people might it be outfitted to carry? So this particular DC-8 was uh, what they call like a series uh, 61. Uh So it was like one of the later, bigger DC-8s. So like if this was outfitted to carry passengers in like a mixed class configuration, like Uh first business economy, it could carry about 200 people. If it was in a high density configuration, like jam-packed with all economy, it could carry up to about 259 people. Okay. So it's it's pretty big, but not... It's not like a 747 or anything. It's not a chunker, but it's No, 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 absolutely not. But it is a a big plane. Uh, It carries quite a few people. So on top of, you know, this, you know, they're, they're finding out that the weights are wrong, you know, so that they begin wondering, well, how is it distributed in the cabin? So they start looking into that and the investigators find out that 
After it had been loaded up, 13 pallets had also been moved farther aft than indicated on the loading sheet. Like, what do you mean? Like pallets of, of material? Like full? Yeah, the cargo pallets in the plane, some of them had been moved further towards the back of the plane than they had written down on the loading sheet. And the way they found this out, you know, again, I remember earlier I talked about security cameras for mm-hmm. the time. They see, you know, when the investigators are looking into this, you know, they watch the security tapes. They see that the plane gets loaded up and then a bunch of pallets get taken off and then put back on. So, of course, they're going to ask, well, what happened there? Why did you take those off and put it back on? It turns out some of the pallets had cargo that overhanged the edge so they couldn't fit properly because everything, you know, is very regimented. Everything has to fit perfectly in the plane. Some of them were overloaded. So they were like, mm-hmm. well, let's take them all out. Let's put the overloaded ones in the very back in of the, the plane. Back, the biggest, right. heaviest ones. Let's put them all in the back. Right. And then let's fit all the other uh, cargo where it's supposed to go. Because normally, not only do they have to have like a sheet with the weight, but they have to have a sheet that indicates how much each individual piece weighs and where it is in the plane. So that way they know what the weight distribution is. Yeah. So it's distributed correctly so that it, it's not... Oh. Yeah, so that this doesn't happen. Oh, my God. It's not just Tetris. <laughs> right. Yeah, you, you're not just like, oh, let's just jam it all in there and make it fit. No, like there's this all has to go in a correct way. It's just maddening. So statements by the flight crew recorded on the cockpit voice recorder showed that the stabilizer trim was set during the taxi out at 2.5 units airplane nose up, which is the appropriate value for the trim setting and center of gravity of 30% that they had been given. So normally what the way it works is they have like a little worksheet that they, you know, mm-hmm. put all the numbers into and it tells them when we're going you know, to take off, we're going to put the trim in this case at 2.4 units. But one, their cargo was heavier than they were told. And two, it was much more aft than they were told. If they had been given these appropriate numbers, they could have reset the trim, which is why on takeoff, you hear the trim motor alarm going off because the plane's trying to pitch up because of the weight Mm-hmm. And so they're having to adjust the trim as they're taking off when it should have been set. If they had had the correct numbers, it would have been set differently. From the even the start. Right. I didn't think, I hadn't thought about that. Actually, that the the weight of the plane affects how you, like even the, all the little pieces, <laughs> like before you take off. Like, oh yeah, change the trim so that it, that's okay. I didn't yeah, know just that. So, that. so that the plane climbs appropriately so that you can control it. Yeah. Even in, uh, you know, I've been, taking flight lessons, even in like small Cessnas, there's a, mm-hmm. there's a takeoff trim position. Just like one of the things you have to check that it's in the right position, even on a small plane. So on a big one like this with cargo, yeah, you definitely want to make sure it's in the right position. So the NTSB, of course, they're going to look into this and they try to figure out, you know, based on the effects of the aircraft load and the center of gravity location, and they try to figure out what should the trim have been set to? And they've, they determined that the airplane's trim was off by at least 1.5 units based on, you know, the information that they have. 1.5 out of what? So they were at 2.4 units up. And if it was off by 1.5, they should have been at probably 3.9 or 4 units nose up. So it's pre- that's pretty significant. And what's max? Like, what's the max you could... So I can't find a specific answer to what trim settings that they would have. Mm -hmm. But I mean, just think about it, like from this perspective, if they were at 2.4 and they were off by 1.5, that's, you know, you're getting about like 66% off. Like if you think Mm -hmm. about it in terms of like ratios and percentages, that's the way I would, I would try to think of it. And, and zero is just like, presumably if the plane is completely balanced and not too heavy or whatever, that's just like straight. Straight. Correct. Yeah. Correct. Earlier, I said, I, I, I may have done the math wrong. I said, you know, if they were at 2.4 and they were 1.5 off, that maybe they should have been at 3.9 up. That's actually not correct. Mm-hmm. If they were at 2.4 units nose up and the plane was pulling them like it was climbing too much, then they actually probably should have been at a trim of about 
0.9. Like being off by 1.5 means that they were probably 1.5 too high. Oh. And that's why the airplane was nosing up. So I would think that would that would be it. So they should have been more at a closer to a level trim, maybe just okay. just above zero. And that would have prevented it from having this giant pitch up movement. And then, of course, this would be exacerbated by the lighter control column forces because the center of gravity was so far aft. You know, the, mm, yeah. the, the control column also, you know, behaves differently because of that. So yeah. the NTSB concludes that the aft center of gravity location and mistrim stabilizer presented the flight crew with a pitch control problem. However, because the actual center of gravity location could not be determined, the severity of the control problem could not be determined. Mm. So they don't have all of the information. Because they don't even know when they reloaded it, they don't even know where everything was put, right? Exactly, right. They just know that it was put in incorrectly. That's exactly right. Like, they normally, you know, they would have their documents to look at and be like, this is exactly where everything was, but they have no idea because the loaders just put everything in haphazardly. Well, not haphazardly. They just <laughs> took everything out and put the stuff that didn't fit in the very back. I know they're professional. Mov- think about, like, whenever I've loaded a moving truck, how it looks versus whenever you hire professional movers and how the yeah. moving truck looks then. Yeah. You know, it's like how much better... What a difference the, the the way you put things into a truck matter. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And that's without even flying. <laughs> right. And yeah, that's on the that's only dealing with two dimensions, not dealing with the third one. Yeah. The interesting thing I learned, this not really doesn't come into effect in this incident, but the interesting thing I learned in looking into this incident was that initially, you know, when the NTSB was uh was looking at the wreckage, they found, you know, the when they put the pallets into the cargo area of the plane, there's like locks on the ground or not the ground, on the floor that, you know, they'd lock the pallets into mm-hmm. or like they'll tie down to. And when they initially found, you know, the wreckage, they found a lot of those uh, locks were in the unlocked position. There were only a few that were in the locked position. And, you know, initially there was concern that did they, you know, they thought, you know, did the loaders not lock any of the cargo down? But what they found out was that these loaders only locked the locks at the end, the ones at the very front and at the very back. They didn't do the middle ones? Right. And it sounds bad, but if you think uh-huh. about it, their, their, their explanation, which is fine, is that everything's loaded so tightly that there's nowhere for it to move. Okay. Like, there's no point in locking the middle ones because it, everything's so tight up against each other, there's no room for it to shift and build any inertia anyway. Well, then what was the thump? I think we're, we're going to get to that. <laughs> <laughs> well, because also, we are talking about like the, the um, angle of the plane... That would compound the issue of the weight distribution, right? Because it's tilting up, so then things, the heavier things might fall or be more inclined to fall back further. Right. right. Yeah. Plus, also when you accelerate, you think about like inertia. You get, yeah. you, get you know, you get pushed back into your seat. Yeah. I mean, all of it's going to be pushing back. That's that's hundred percent true. Anyway, I got distracted talking about that. <laughs> Just like it was, it was an interesting note. Uh, I thought. The NTSB did look at the action of the crew as best they could, and they think that if the first officer had chosen to trim the airplane in the first critical moments during and after rotation, he would have obtained a greater nose-down pitching moment and might have been able to correct most, if not all, of the mistrim condition, preventing the airplane from stalling. Investigators considered the possibility that a more experienced pilot, particularly one who had previously encountered an aft-loaded outer trim condition on takeoff, might have assessed the situation more rapidly and engaged the airplane's powerful pitch trim more quickly to aid in the recovery attempt. So they're saying... Maybe if, as soon as they had taken off, if they had Mm -hmm. trimmed it down immediately, they might have been able to avoid a crash here. For example, if the captain had been Mm. flying during the takeoff, he might have more quickly recognized the need for and applied a trim correction. Mm. You know, although the NTSB was unable to determine precisely how far aft the CG was located and thus the extent to which the airplane was mistrimmed, they conclude that the mistrim of the airplane based on the incorrectly loaded cargo 
presented the flight crew with a situation that, without prior training or experience, required exceptional skills and reactions that cannot be expected of a typical line pilot. So yeah, what it's just saying is like, it's possible if they had immediately started trimming, they might have been able to survive and you know avoid a crash, but they but don't know. it's not pilot error. Yeah, it's not like the pilot's just messed up. Right. The reactions required would be outside the scope of what would be expected of a typical mm. pilot. Yeah. How many seconds was it from the V1 to the crash hitting ground? V1 occurred at about 12.35 and 43 seconds. Mm -hmm. The airplane hit the ground at 12.36 and 25 seconds. So it's like 42 seconds. So, okay, yeah, that's real quick. Yeah, it's it's almost no time. I mean, they they weren't even in the air a minute, you know. Yeah. (laughs) And, you know, V1 isn't even when they're rotating, you know, when they're pulling back. They're not even off the ground then. Right. They're at the speed when they need to take off then. So, you know, the, uh, so V1 occurred at 12.35.43. A few seconds later is when they rotate. You say rotate, that means like... Pull back, yeah, when they start trying to climb. That was probably, if I had to guess, 12.35, 47, 48, somewhere around there. Mm-hmm. So it was it was extremely quick. Okay, yeah. And it just goes back to that whole like, oh, well, maybe a bit possible for the pilots to fix. But yeah, that's such a sh- quick time. Yeah, it's incredibly quick. So, in the hours before the accident flight, the exchange of airplanes required a series of significant cargo paperwork changes by Fine Air. The Fine Air employees refined the weight and balance calculations for the originally scheduled aircraft to accommodate the accident aircraft, and then defined the pallet sequence to produce a more aft center of gravity of 30% Mach. Fine Air employees stated that these changes were communicated to Aramar by fax and by direct telephone conversation. However, the fax communications were the subject of conflicting statements from personnel from both companies. Further, there was no evidence that the revised paperwork was picked up by the Aeromar security guard responsible for the accident flight's cargo. Wait, so that means that they might have loaded it for the original plane? Right. So, you know, at this point now, they're they're in the finger-pointing <laughs> phase of uh-huh. the investigation, which is always fun, where, you know, the plane had to change and Fine Air saying, hey, we told them that, you know, we faxed them and called them and talked to them about this change. And, you know, Aramar saying, oh, they never, no, that's not true. They didn't tell us. So now it's like, well, now they have to figure out who's right. So is the issue, or is it both, that the plane was mismeasured, right? Like the weights were wrong, okay? Mm-hmm. And then also the, the, the cargo itself was like too misloaded in that it was like too thick, so it didn't fit properly. And then also that... They had configured it for the first plane? Possibly. At this point, yeah, we haven't we haven't said definitively. But yeah, you know, center of gravity is going to be a little different on every plane because every mm-hmm. plane has slightly different equipment on it, slightly different weight. So it's going to be a little, it'll be off a bit. So right, uh, now they're arguing about whether or not they even loaded it for the correct plane mm-hmm. or they had the correct weights for the correct plane. And of course, there's conflicting information about whether the Aramar and Fine Air employees involved were aware of the airplane change and whether the changes in the loading instructions were for the accident airplane. Aramar's vice president stated that a company security guard picks up loading paperwork at Fine Air immediately prior to the loading of a plane or when the security guard delivers the cargo to the Fine Air ramp. The Fine Air employee who calculated the original load for the original aircraft stated that the Aramar security guard in charge of the cargo picked up the paperwork with the cargo before 6 a.m. on the day of the accident. However, the employee who went on duty after 6 a.m. stated the security guard did not return to pick up the revised weight distribution form. So at this point, Fine Air is saying that, yeah, the security guard picked it up at, before 6 a.m., but then remember, they knew they had to change the plane. The next employee on the next shift said that the security guard never came back for the new, the new form. Mm. 
And although the Finair employees stated they faxed updated weight distribution and loading information to Aramar before the flight, Aramar's vice president stated such a practice was neither customary or usual. What do you mean? That it's not normal to fax? Yeah, that normally they would handle it via the security guard. So they're saying they did both? They gave it, they faxed it and gave it to the security guard? Is that what you... So Finair is saying that they gave the original weight to the security guard before 6 a.m. Uh-huh. And that the security guard never came back for the updated information. So Finair faxed it to Aramar. And Aramar saying that that is not the way that things are usually done. Okay, but did they fax it in, as a response to the security guard not coming back? It doesn't say if they did it as a response. It could be that you know, the security guard didn't come, so they just decided to fax it. Or Because the way Aramar says that it was neither customary or usual, he's making it seem like Aramar normally never receives this information via fax. So it, I, I don't know. I'm trying, yeah. to, I'm trying to like just give all the information I can gotcha. here. So I don't know. It, it seems unusual based on the finger pointing. Yeah. So based on interviews with the Aramar employees, the security guard assigned to the flight's cargo would have already been on duty at the fine air ramp when the fine air employees said they faxed the changes to Aramar. So testimony by Aramar loaders indicated that the cargo pallets were arranged on the ramp for loading according to the weight distribution form calculated for the original aircraft. That's what you were saying before, that they had arranged everything for like the original plane, mm-hmm. not for the new one. Therefore, the safety board concludes that the security guard was not aware of the airplane change and that he instructed Aramar loaders to load the airplane in accordance with the weight distribution form he possessed for the original aircraft. So on top of everything else, they loaded it for the old plane, not for the new one that they were actually flying. Oh, is that why the cargo didn't fit? No, the cargo didn't fit because some of it was loaded improperly. Uh, It's all supposed to fit very securely on the pallet, some yeah. of the pallets, it, it hung over the edges. And okay. the spaces are so tight on the plane that if it hangs over, then it blocks the next pallet. And that was definitely, what, Aramar's fault? Because they're the one who, it was their cargo, right? Yeah, it is Aramar's cargo. I'm pretty, I don't know 100% definitively if they are the ones who put it on the pallet. However, that it's a reasonable guess that that is what happened because they received the cargo not on pallets. Mm-hmm. And then they had the cargo on pallets to put on the plane. I can't imagine someone else came in and put the stuff on the pallets. I mean, I guess it could be the airline because it's their plane. And they're, they're, no, they're, Aramar hand, is handling all of the cargo. Fine Air is just providing the plane. Okay. And Aramar, it's Aramar's, or the, they're, they're the loaders too? Yes. Okay. So unless they like outsource it to another company who just specifically puts their cargo on pallets, it would be Aramar. And even so then Aramar is the one handling this. So then who's in charge of the, figuring out the distribution to balance the plane? Is that Aramar too then? Yeah, it would It would be, uh, we, we've talked about this before, it would be like a load master or a supervisor of some kind. Yeah. Who, whose that, job it is to, you know, to lay it all out and figure out how it's all going to go on the plane. And that's, Aero, that's an Aramar employee? In this case, yes. Aramar's cargo handler's descriptions of the initial loading were consistent with the plans for the original aircraft, However, they stated the pallets could not be secured with locks during the initial loading. And according to statements of the loaders and supervisor, in an attempt to correct this, all pallets from position 5 aft were pushed back one position each. Thus, the NTSB concludes that the accident airplane was loaded with plans for a different airplane's distribution load, but even that did not match the final loading that was on the accident airplane. So like we said, they had the wrong plan, then it didn't fit, so they put some of the pallets at the very back of the plane to try to make it fit. Yeah, so even if they had the right plan, they still didn't follow it. Correct. And loaders gave contradictory statements about the number of pallet-engaged locks for positions 6 through 18 when their rearrangement and loading were completed. 
The Aramar loading supervisor, who was responsible for ensuring that the pallet locks were in place, stated he put up several locks near position 18 and that he relied on other loaders to put locks up forward to that position. However, the NTSB found considerable evidence that few of the pallet locks were engaged. That's what I was talking about earlier. Mm. For example, 57 of the 60 locks recovered from the wreckage were found in the unlocked position, and post-accident testing found no evidence of cracking, shearing, or elongation associated with impact damage and failure. The flight engineer, so the flight engineer would be a fine air employee, mm-hmm. was required to verify that at least three cargo pallet locks were locked at each position loaded with the pallet during his pre-flight check. However, fine air representatives told investigators that it would have been unlikely for a flight engineer to make this check of the entire airplane during routine operations in Miami. Other company personnel indicated that in Miami, airplanes were typically loaded before flight crews arrived, and some loads did not provide sufficient clearance for the flight engineer to verify the status of locked positions after the cargo door. So even if it was his responsibility, sometimes cargo is packed in there so much that you can't get back there and actually look and verify it. Yeah, so it's like you can't. He can only look at the outside of the plane and right. maybe open the, the trunk and look in and say, well, look, it looks good from here. I can't. Yeah. Right. Yeah, exactly. And in, in this case, instead of a truck, it's the like the cargo door, the side door. You know, they're looking yeah. like, I guess it's all in there. The NTSB recognizes that Fine Air changed the flight engineer's pre-flight checklist after the accident as part of a review and revision of its loading procedures and that new controls are now in place to ensure the locks are engaged. However, at the time of the accident, the flight engineer faced inconsistent guidance and expectations about this task. Thus, the NTSB concludes that although the flight engineer was required to ensure all cargo pallet locks were locked, company operating procedures and practices in Miami hindered him from accomplishing this task. And like I said, it, it's tough to say because they did lock the, you know, the last, the, the ones on the ends. And there's really, you know, when everything's really tight, there's no room for it to move. So that's kind of, in my opinion, it's kind of a, a gray area. Yeah, you know, it would have helped if it was all locked, but, you know, they, there was no yeah. way to verify that. The NTSB also found fault with the FAA for not properly overseeing the actions being done by Fine Air's cargo crews. FAA inspectors assigned to Fine Air and Miami Flight Standards District Office Managers stated that before the Fine Air accident, there was no guidance or minimal guidance in FAA written directives for the surveillance of cargo operations and there were no guidelines on how to evaluate the conditions of pallets, netting, and other cargo equipment. And this is for fine air, but not for Aeromar, because they're the ones who did all the loading, right? So this is a problem that the NTSB is faulting the FAA for. Okay. Saying that they didn't provide proper guidance to fine air. And I guess fine air is the one, they're the ones who tell Aeromar, yo, here's what you need to do. Like it's, it's, well, yeah. 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 You're right. Like wh- who's responsible for what? So Aramar would be responsible. It's their cargo. They're responsible mm-hmm. for loading it. But, and this is the, the, the problem that they're identifying here is like, what's fine air's role in this? Mm. You know, if they're supposed to supervise this, but they can't, you know, what, it, what is the exact guidance here? Yeah. What is, what is the process for this? Who ultimately, who is responsible for this? You know, and like I said there, there was no guidelines on how to evaluate the condition of pallets, netting, and cargo equipment. But if the pallets, netting, and cargo equipment belong to Aramar, you know, how does Fine Air examine this and make sure it's okay? So basically they're saying, this is so confusing because it was prop- there's no proper, yeah. That's why we're like, well, wait, who, what? Uh, yeah. Right, yeah. And of course, it's not a problem until there's an accident. And they're like, mm-hmm. and then the finger pointing starts. Yeah. And then they're like, oh, right, whose responsibility was this? You know, yeah. Who is the one who's going to get blamed for this? The manager of the FAA's uh, Miami uh, Flight Standards District Office stated he believed the FAA surveillance of Fine Air's operations was adequate before the accident, but acknowledged that inspectors were 
concentrating their emphasis on other areas and not on cargo loading. The FAA regional director based in Atlanta, whose jurisdiction includes Miami, stated that it's hard to define the quality of surveillance, but acknowledged that the problems found should have been found earlier by principal investigators assigned to fine air. So, yeah, they're acknowledging, the FAA is acknowledging, yeah, you know, this is, this is a problem. I guess, you know, they didn't necessarily find it before this accident, but, you know, they do acknowledge, yeah, this is something that needs to be addressed. Okay. And of course, you know, we have the findings here. There was no evidence that failures of the airplane structures or flight control systems contributed to the accident. Like we said, the engines were working fine. Flight controls were fine. The, the plane was fine. There was no mechanical problem with the plane. The compressor surges or stalls were caused by the airplane's attitude before impact. No significant loss of engine thrust occurred. Engine performance was not a factor in the accident. The airplane pitched up quickly into a stall, recovered briefly from the stall, and stalled again. Recovery before ground impact was unlikely once the stall series began. The center of gravity of the accident airplane was near or even after the airplane's aft center of gravity limit. The center of gravity shift resulted in the airplane's trim being misset by at least 1.5 units airplane nose up. The aft center of gravity location and mistrim stabilizer presented the flight crew with a pitch control problem. However, because the actual center of gravity location could not be determined, the severity of the control problem could not be determined. So again, that just goes back over and over. They don't know exactly how much this stuff weighed. They don't know where it was. They can't determine, you know, how bad this problem actually was because of it. The mistrim of the airplane based on the incorrectly loaded cargo presented the flight crew with a situation that without prior training or experience, required exceptional skills and reactions that cannot be expected of a typical line pilot. Mm -hmm. Procedures used by Fine Air and Aeromar to prepare and distribute cargo weight pallet distribution forms and final weight and balance load sheets were inadequate to ensure that the documents correctly reflected the true loading of the accident airplane. And we just keep seeing evidence of this all over again. They don't know where the stuff was or how it was loaded. Mm -hmm. The security guard was not aware of the airplane change and he instructed Aramar loaders to load the airplane in accordance with the weight distribution form he possessed from the originally scheduled aircraft. Again, just problems on problems. The Aramar cargo loading supervisor failed to ensure that the pallets were loaded according to an approved load plan and failed to confirm that the cargo was properly restrained. A significant shift of cargo rearward at or before rotation did not occur and was not the cause of the initial extreme pitch up at rotation although cargo compression or shifting might have exacerbated the pitch-up moment as pitch increased. That was the thing you've been asking since the beginning. Mm -hmm. It did not shift. It didn't shift, but then what was the thump? (laughs) Yeah, unfortunately, I think in this case, um, they never say. They never got down. Oh, my. And and again, again, remember, like I said, the flight data recorder didn't Uh record all of the parameters. So we, we don't know. Yeah. This was a really tricky one because on top of the flight data recorder not recording everything, they didn't know where the cargo was or how much it weighed. Like there was just a lot of unknowns that shouldn't mm-hmm. have been unknown. So it makes it difficult to say 100% definitively. But they can they can say that there was not a significant shift of the cargo rearward and was not that was not the cause of the initial pitch up at rotation. Mm. But, you know, they they do have a little carve out there saying cargo compression or shifting might have exacerbated the pitch-up moment as pitch increased. So compression, like, example, if they were hauling something that it was, like, amorphous, you know, like... Like a liquid or something. Yeah, like a bunch of waterbeds. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> all, all the waterbeds would squish back, right? Yeah, that's possible. I don't know why I went to waterbeds. <laughs> well, it's it's like a, a big container of water. I think they ship those without the water in them, typically. I think you supply your own water when you get a waterbed. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that, yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Although the flight engineer was required to ensure that all cargo pallet locks were locked, company operating procedures and practices in Miami International Airport hindered him from accomplishing this task. Mm -hmm. 
The FAA inspectors assigned to Fine Air failed to ensure that known deficiencies in Fine Air's cargo operations were corrected. The NTSB determines that the probable cause of this accident, which resulted from the airplane being misloaded to produce a more aft center of gravity and correspondingly incorrect stabilizer trim settings that precipitated an extreme pitch up at rotation was 1. The failure of Fine Air to exercise operational control over the cargo loading process and 2. The failure of Aeromar to load the airplane as specified by Fine Air. Contributing to the accident was the failure of the FAA to adequately monitor Fine Air's operational control responsibilities for cargo loading and the failure of the FAA to ensure that known cargo-related deficiencies were corrected at Fine Air. So in the end, it's both their faults. Did they have, because sometimes in like court cases, right, they give like a percentage fault, like, oh, it was like 40, 60, you know? Right. Did they did they break it down or do we know? I don't know. Like you said, I don't think it's uh I don't think the NTSB typically does that. I think, you know, things like that are typically divvied up by courts and insurance mm. providers to determine like who's going to be paying out on insurance claims. I don't know of any litigation that occurred as a result of this incident. I didn't read anything about that. Yeah, and I'm sure there's there was some litigation, but it's just yeah. It's probably not as maybe documented or... Yeah, uh, plus, I mean, it, might, there, you know, there, it wasn't a plane full of passengers. So, mm-hmm. you know, four people passed away. Actually, five, because there was one on the ground. It wasn't like hundreds of people. So it's yeah. a lot more... It's not as many people, you know. Uh, it's yeah. a lot of cars got damaged. Yeah. And, of course, cargo. So, so uh, one thing. Nothing in the report laid any blame on um, fine air for not having the... Uh, the flight air reporting system working the thing that wasn't working. So they don't the have flight all the data, data recorder, flight data recorder. Yeah. That's not, it's funny you say that that's not mentioned. In, oh, I guess cause it's not causal to the accident. They don't talk about it in their findings uh, or in their recommendations. Cause I think that's just something that is supposed to be working. You know, I think it's yeah. the kind of thing where it's like, Hey, you need to fix it. It's like, it's like outside the scope of just this particular incident. It's yeah. like, hey, also, you need to make sure that these are working. But it's not mentioned in this, uh, as far as I remember, it's not mentioned specifically in the uh, findings or recommendations. Because mm. it didn't cause the accident, but it made it harder to, to break down. Right. And anyway, speaking of which, uh, I mean, we're on to the recommendations here. Require air carriers to provide flight crews with instructions on mistrim cues that might be available during taxi and initial rotation. And require air carriers using full flight simulators in their training programs to provide flight crews with special purpose operational training that includes an unanticipated pitch mistrim condition counted on takeoff. So training mm-hmm. to identify these mistrims. Conduct an audit of supplemental cargo operators to ensure that proper weight and balance documents are being used, that the forms are based on manufacturer's data or other approved data applicable to the airplane being operated, and that FAA principal inspectors confirm that the data are entered correctly on the forms. Obviously, makes sense. Mm -hmm. Require carriers to develop and use loading checklists to positively verify that all loading steps have been accomplished for each loaded position on the airplane and that the condition, weight, and sequencing of each pallet is correct. There's a reason they put them in the order they put them in. Yeah, and it's like, make sure someone's checking it. Right. It's not one, one, wait, what do you call that? A, a, A single... Single point of failure. Single point of failure, yeah. Yeah. Require training for cargo handling personnel and develop advisory material for carriers and principal operations inspectors that addresses curriculum content that includes, but is not limited to, weight and balance, cargo handling, cargo restraint, and hazards of misloading, and require all operators to provide initial and recurrent training for cargo handling personnel consistent with this guidance. Require all principal inspectors assigned to cargo air carriers to observe, as part of their annual work program requirements, the complete loading operation, including cargo weighing, weight, and balance compliance, 
flight following and dispatch of an airplane. So just even more training for the loaders. Mm -hmm. Evaluate the surveillance program to ensure that budget and personnel resources are sufficient and used effectively to maintain adequate oversight of the operation and maintenance of both passenger and cargo carriers, irrespective of size, a better surveillance and monitoring. And the last one is direct the principal maintenance inspector assigned to fine air to re-examine the airline's continuing analysis and surveillance program and take action if necessary to ensure that repetitive maintenance discrepancies are being identified and corrected. This one is probably the closest that they would get to mentioning the black box. This doesn't mention the flight data recorder explicitly, Mm -hmm. but I think that this would be kind of a catch-all for that kind of thing when they talk about repetitive maintenance discrepancies Mm. being identified and corrected. Uh, It might fall under that bucket. The the crazy thing is when this accident happened, you know, it happened so close to uh, the airport. Like, Like I said, right across the street, essentially. You know, they were in the air. 40 seconds or so, if that. That's crazy to think also everyone at the airport could see it probably. Yeah. In fact, you you know, you say that there were FAA security uh, special agents who were working at the airport at the time who responded to the scene because they saw the plane crash. So it's like they saw it happen and they were able to go out to the scene and also to the fine air offices where they were able to get the documents immediately. You know, and some of that documentation was recovered from garbage receptacles. Oh, Right, which caused a criminal investigation to be opened up. Oh, uh, it got juicy, Gus. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> and it led to charges, including destruction and covering up of evidence. Oh, and if you think about it, like if the agents hadn't been there working at the airport and seen it, you know, if they had to fly in or it had taken time, then, you know, the trash would have been taken out or there would have been more time to get rid of that stuff. Who trashed the documents? Fine air. Fine air. Fine Air and the ground handling agent Aramar, they pled guilty to that. Wait, so they did it together? Yeah. Uh, They were fined about $5 million. Wait, personally? Like the companies or the employees or what? The companies. Okay. Just for like tossing some of the paperwork. Because I mean, they knew, right? It's like some stuff, or at least Aramar definitely knew. And um, Fine Air might have, you know, tossed some stuff as well just to be you know, just to try to cover things up, which, you you know, as, as you know from this podcast, you're not supposed to do. Mm. And, you know, it showed right away their paperwork was all messed up. You know, when the inspectors or the investigators started looking at it, they're like, none of this makes sense. You know, Wait, so I, did they just check the trash on their own or were they like checking for the documents and couldn't find the documents or like what? That's I don't know, but I imagine that, you know, they look for the documents and they can't find them or the the people working there say they don't have it. So they they're going to look in the trash. Yeah, and maybe they were being shady, like right. You know, that's the only bit of like legal action I know. And as far as that goes, you know, there is no like divvying up responsibility, right? That's just like mm-hmm. you just get fined for that. Yeah, but yeah, that's it. I you know, it's it's interesting because you know this was a you know a cargo incident. It seems really cut and dry. And uh, you know, initially I was like, this we're this going to be such a super short episode. <laughs> we're going to be like done in thirty minutes and. We've been going for, we've been recording for about an hour. Yeah. <laughs> talking about loading cargo onto an airplane and how that can go wrong. It was so, like you said, or they determined, it's like, well, this was confusing because there was bad records and, and, and not a good process. Yeah. And, you know, n- and things that normally never happen. Like we cover lots of these incidents and that's always the amazing thing, right? You're able to find so much information, even after, you know, a plane crashes or is broken up into thousands of pieces because normally there's a really good paper trail there's a you know procedures and process for how everything's supposed to happen and this one just kind of didn't follow that mm-hmm. and you know the accident happens as a result of it but that's it for fine air flight 101 
really interesting uh, incident just from all the little things that went wrong that led to uh, led to this crash. It reminded me of that episode. We did a car- another cargo episode. I think it was in Iran? Uh, Afghanistan. It was in Afghanistan where they had bad cargo loading. Right. And that one, that's what made me think, oh, maybe the thump was all the cargo. Well, well I yeah. don't want to spoil it. Maybe if you listen. <laughs> yeah, that's the National Air uh, incident. You should go check it out. Yeah, we did that one some time ago. But yeah, that that one was over Afghanistan. That one was a, a a little a little different. But yeah, that's it for Fine Air Flight 101. I think super interesting, entirely avoidable, uh, mm-hmm. sadly, like a lot of these incidents are. But yeah, don't forget, give us a follow on social media at Black Box Down Pod. I'll post, like I said, I'll post an image of the aftermath of the plane, you know, wreckage going into that mall parking lot and how it stopped just short. You can see. In some of the images, you can see like a little bit of scorching on the outside of the mall, like where the flames were were up against it. And that's how close it was to, you know, actually hitting the mall itself. Yeah. But yeah, that's it. And we'll be back next week with another episode. Yeah. And tell your friends and family about our show, please. It helps. Yeah. Thanks. Bye.